0: Because, again, we can't let them hesitate either. I mean, one of the first things that you can do as a brigade judge advocate or what have you is have your soldiers be so concerned about violating the law that they hesitate. And As we all know, in a combat situation, if you hesitate even one second, you're going to get a bullet in the head.
1: Welcome to NSL Unscripted, a national security law podcast brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's The Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. We bring you conversations and hot topics from NSL practitioners today, and hope you enjoy this episode.
2: Welcome to NSL Unscripted. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Dan Maurer, professor in the National Security Law Department here at the Army's JAG School, where I primarily teach and write about war crimes, human rights law, and command responsibility. It's my pleasure and privilege to talk today with one of the most accomplished practitioners and scholars of international criminal law and the law of war, Professor David Crane. Professor Crane's resume is long, intimidating, uh, but ultimately quite inspiring. He was the founding chief prosecutor of the International War Crimes Tribunal for West Africa, called the Special Court for Sierra Leone. He was the first American since Justice Robert Jackson and Telford Taylor at Nuremberg in 1945 to be the chief prosecutor of an international war crimes tribunal. He's also a retired member of the Senior Executive Service of the United States and a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Judge Advocate, drafter of the Department of Defense's Law of War program, and a retired professor at Syracuse. He founded the Global Accountability Network, which includes the Syrian Accountability Project, the Yemeni Accountability Project, the Venezuelan Accountability Project, the Uyghur Accountability Project, and the Ukrainian Accountability Project. He's also the founder of the Impunity Watch News at Syracuse University's College of Law. Recently published a book about his time in Sierra Leone titled Every Living Thing, Facing Down Terrorists, Warlords, and Thugs in West Africa, A Story of Justice. He is currently a distinguished scholar-in-residence at the Syracuse University College of Law, and an adjunct professor with the Washington College of Law at of American University, where he teaches international criminal practice. Most importantly, for the context of our conversation, Professor Crane is assisting in the creation of a special tribunal for Ukraine for the crime of aggression. Professor Crane, welcome to NSL Unscripted.
0: Well, it's a pleasure to be here uh, and to talk with you uh, today,
2: Mr. Yes, so, given uh, the ICC's recent issuance of the arrest warrant for Putin, what are your thoughts on on the crime that was alleged? Did you did you see that one coming? It was uh, allegations of uh, uh, war crimes, specifically deportation and transportation of civilians, uh, children specifically. Um, Was that one of the crimes that you initially focused on?
0: Well, again, it's interesting. Uh, One is, I think it's really important that your listeners understand that for the second time in the modern era, a sitting head Mm -hmm. of state has been indicted for international crimes. That is a huge marker placing and putting on notice to all tyrants and thugs around the world that if you commit international crimes, you will be held accountable. That notice was certainly stenciled when we took down President Charles Taylor of Liberia, Mm -hmm. first sitting head of state, but now we have the second. So that's really critical. This is a great moment in history. So we have the President of the Russian Federation an indicted war criminal. Now to answer your uh, question specifically, prosecutors, international prosecutors, look at the situation, look at what needs to be done. And uh, my friend Karim Khan, who is the chief prosecutor at the International Criminal Court, made an important decision, realizing that, to ensure that the world appreciates the gravity of the crimes that are being committed by the Russian Federation, he needed to send an important political signal, as well as a legal signal to the world that this cannot stand. Uh, the indictment of uh, of uh, President Putin uh, and his uh, assistant related to uh, uh, child affairs uh, is just the beginning of uh, of a further amended indictment of President Putin for other crimes, uh, as well as his senior commanders. Uh, throughout the region, committing war crimes and crimes against humanity as well. So I wasn't surprised as to the technique. What he wanted to do, I think, was uh, start building the cornerstone. And it really helped me and, and our work in creating the Special Tribunal for Ukraine and the Crime of Aggression because we've set this thing completely up. It is a package ready to go. We have a UN resolution. We draft UN resolution. Uh, We have a statute which the UN and the Ukraine can uh, bilaterally enter into. Uh, We even have a step-by-step guide. There's six steps of starting the tribunal going all the way to the indictment of Putin and Mm. his senior political and uh, military commanders for for aggression. So the package is put together, but the challenge is, and this is, I think, important also for your listeners, the bright red thread of modern international criminal law is politics, with a small p. Uh, We can create tribunals and courts, uh, but the decision to create them and to maintain them is a political decision by the international community. And so what we're doing now is slowly but surely to include the United States, which was kind of a reluctant partner on the aggression issue up until just last month where they publicly declared that he has to be held accountable for the crime of aggression. is getting nations, members of the General Assembly, to step forward and back us in the General Assembly resolution, giving the Secretary General the authority to, in fact, enter into that bilateral agreement. Uh, We need two-thirds of Mm -hmm. the uh, members of the General Assembly to actually do that. So, we're getting there. Uh, Indications are that we're slowly but surely getting there, but uh, that's where we stand right now related to, to that. But again, at the end of the day, the indictment of Vladimir Putin for war crimes, crimes against humanity, regardless of what that crime is, is a significant historical event.
2: Right. So it sends, uh, as you said, a political message, a signal about the gravity of what has been done to date and the willingness of the international community to kind of stand up and say, "No, there was a line. You've crossed it, and we are willing, notwithstanding your your military capacity." Uh, or capabilities that we're willing to say, you've done this illegal act or many illegal acts. So I think there's value there. Do you think at the end of the day, justice for senior civilian leaders in the Russian government will, will occur through this tribunal or will it occur through others? So domestic Ukrainian courts, what's more likely?
0: Well, again, uh, there are several scenarios. Right now, it's not absolutely locked and certain that we'll have an international United Nations-backed special tribunal for Ukraine and the crime of aggression. There are three approaches that the international community is considering. The international approach that I have been putting together with my colleagues is the one that President Zelensky has publicly said, this is what Ukrainians want. Mm-hmm. So that helps a great deal. But there is also uh, other models that are being considered. Uh, The United States tends to favor an aggression uh, tribunal that is more of a hybrid, uh, working with the uh, Ukrainians themselves. And then there is another, uh, less popular, but one that still is there to be considered, and that is the European model of that, is a European-centric tribunal uh, dealing with the aggression. So there's those, you know, those three uh, models uh, that are being considered as far as the dealing uh, with that aggression.
2: What's the most likely venue for justice long term for, for maybe even just beyond Putin, the rest of the senior civilian leadership within the government that's responsible for these crimes and atrocities? Is it going to be this special tribunal? Is it going to be a Ukrainian domestic court? Is it going to be this hybrid European model? Practical realities given, what do you think is likely to happen?
0: Well, having outlined the various considerations that we're thinking about related to aggression, the Ukrainian regional, or a domestic regional, or an international approach, the seniors, the senior leadership, both in the political leadership within the Russian Federation to include Vladimir Putin, as well as the senior military commanders, uh, will have to be dealt with at the international level at a UN-backed international tribunal. Uh, the prosecutor general for Ukraine has been working very hard, and has been working hard since day one related to prosecuting lower-level individuals, mm-hmm. junior officers, and individual uh, Russian soldiers for uh, violating the laws of armed conflict, and uh, that's happening as we speak. And they have, they have over. Oh my goodness, they're approaching uh, seventy-five thousand. Yeah, at least uh, I've even heard this morning. Uh, he was being interviewed. It's eighty thousand, but he's working very hard in accountability. In fact, we've already had Russian soldiers being held accountable and and, and convicted under uh, Ukrainian domestic law. Right. So uh, the actual senior membership and leaders, and I think it's really important again for your listeners to understand is everybody just talks about Putin, but you know we're going after the foreign minister uh, Lavrov. We're going after the uh, head of their national security division. We're going after. Uh, there's sec- uh, the Minister of Defense and the, and the senior commander uh, in, uh, uh, in Ukraine and individuals uh, throughout the Russian government holding them accountable for th- that aggression. We have a list and, in fact, that Russian war crimes white paper that we put out uh, by the Global Accountability Network, which I founded, uh, the third edition has an updated um, Most Responsible Parties. These are the individuals okay. that we're going to be looking at to prosecute. So it's not just Putin, right. but it's also everyone. And so this is going to be, over time, a, a long-term determined effort by holding them all accountable. And I think as a footnote, uh, within the statute that we've created, there's also another crime called aiding and abetting aggression. It's never been done before. We also have other nation-states who are actively involved in supporting Russian efforts in Ukraine. Belarus mm-hmm. comes to immediate mind, mm-hmm. but we're also looking at Iran uh, and North Korea. Again, to send a signal to any of these uh, strong men around the world, and there are about a dozen, a few of which are actually actively involved in uh, holding them accountable for the aggression in Ukraine by Russia by supporting them and using it as an uh, aiding and abetting. Mm-hmm.
2: So it's almost as if, and I'm not sure to the extent to which you're you're familiar with the term lawfare, but it's often used uh, in a pejorative sense to label things, for example, that China is doing in the South China Sea, using their interpretation of the law to effectuate their own national security objectives and foreign policy, kind of twisting, if you will, due process and the rule of law understandings of other nations to get what they want short of going to war. And it sounds like legal strategy, this prosecutorial strategy of who we indict, when we indict them, in order to send these political or diplomatic signals is a kind of lawfare as well. Would you agree with that?
0: Well, I I, I agree with the idea that we can use the law for political purposes, not being influenced by politics, but Mm -hmm. using it in a political sense. Having been a international chief prosecutor, when I was putting together my prosecutorial strategy, The things that I considered wasn't just the law. I had to consider the uh, the political and diplomatic ramifications of what I was about to do to include potentially taking down a head of state Uh and his henchmen, but also I had to consider both the the practical aspects of how to do that as well as uh, uh, the political ramifications of it, but then also the law. But one of the things that that I learned, uh, I thought was very important and has never been done before, and that is considering the cultural approach to prosecution at the international level. Mm. Uh, I'm famous for the term is the justice we seek, the justice they want. Mm. In other words, you have to consider, because all of this, and again, when we create international tribunals and courts, you know, we have to, and I was always reminding my great people in my office that we're here, only for the victims. This is for and about the victims. And so if we don't respect the victims' perspectives on what is a just result, then we are not completely bringing justice to victims of atrocity crimes. So it's really critical, is the justice we see, the justice they want. And so I've been also inserting in, as we develop our strategic plan related to the aggression court, is also doing the very same thing And that is making sure that we don't forget who we're really doing this for. And that is the citizens of Ukraine.
2: So that makes me think of Victor's justice in some sense. So to what extent do you see Ukrainian courts, prosecutors, trying some of the more lower level military officials, as you mentioned earlier, sir, they're Seventy-five to 80,000 open investigations right now into all these kinds of war crimes and atrocities on the ground. Um, by my count, 26 or 27 convictions already, but most of these are for relatively low level soldiers. I, I think the first successful conviction was for a sergeant. Is that the right strategy to take in this kind of opening salvo of domestic prosecutions? So this is part one of a question. Did, did they open up the prosecution the right way, charging the right people at the right time. And the second question is, are Ukrainian courts the right venue to try Ukrainians accused of potential war crimes or atrocities?
0: I have no quibble with the prosecutor general prosecuting individuals who violate uh, Ukrainian law on their soil. And so if we have Russian soldiers who uh, uh, aggressively and illegally invaded uh, his country, he has the absolute right under the Ukrainian Constitution and the Ukrainian Criminal Code to prosecute anyone who commits uh, those crimes. Uh, again, that doesn't hamper an international effort at all. Uh, it also it just allows that prosecutor general. I think it's important to send a signal to the Russian people as well that that you know we're we're, we're taking care of business here. Mm-hmm. this is and, and sending a signal that your soldiers, your sons, And perhaps daughters are committing violations of Ukrainian law by just stepping into our soil. And if they don't follow uh, the prescripts of the laws of armed conflict, the Geneva Conventions, what have then we're going to hold them accountable. So I think that that is, you know, uh, uh, really critical Mm -hmm. as far as uh, uh, doing that. So no, this is. it's not a, a, grand, a grand strategy. It's a strategy by someone who has an absolute right to do that, and he, he needs to send, uh, on behalf of uh, President Zelensky, a signal that uh, you know, we're going to deal with this under law. I think this is so important. You know, one of the things that I've been uh, I always advocated is the rule of law is more powerful than the rule of the gun. Even though Ukrainian military have uh, had very effectively stopped and are pushing back uh, Russian Federation soldiers, uh, there's nothing, you know, that's important, but also to show to the world that, that Ukraine is using the rule of law to uh, right wrongs as, as well. Now, as to your second question is...
2: Should Ukrainian domestic courts try their own Ukrainian citizens for allegations of war crimes?
0: Well, you know, as as, as our listeners, our more sophisticated listeners understand, is, is that uh, signatories to the... Uh, To the precept of the laws of armed conflict international humanitarian law is is that in fact we encourage uh, States parties to prosecute their own armed forces uh, or anybody else committing Violations of the laws of armed conflict on their soil using their domestic law Uh, That is the preferred option. It's only when they're unable or unwilling to that we can in fact refer it to another jurisdictional body and uh, and so Yes, I think that that's uh, they're doing what the, the uh, international humanitarian law laws of law conflict require, is to prosecute those their soldiers, and they're doing that uh, uh, as well. Now, of course, as by way of footnote, the Russian Federation has uh, come up with these sham "quote war crimes" uh, uh, courts, uh, kind of tit for tat. Mm-hmm. Ukrainians are uh, prosecuting their soldiers, so they take a, they capture some POWs, trump up some charges, and prosecute them for the same thing. Uh, it's been my understanding is, is that these allegations by the Russian Federation's uh, forces on Ukrainian uh, Armed Forces personnel are really pretty much trumped up. But you know, I've had discussions with senior members of the Ukrainian bar. They get it, they understand their obligations to, to try everyone mm-hmm. uh, who violates the law and they're doing it with their own citizens as well.
2: And they're doing it uh, in the middle of an armed conflict, middle of an international armed conflict of the largest scale since probably World War II. The, The conflict has not ended yet, and they're still under attack. And yet they're still having courts. They're still having investigations. They're still doing what they would normally do on an everyday basis. And yet we have what seems to be this unprecedented amount of international support from NGOs, from other nations that are not parties to the conflict, that are providing investigative resources, experts on the ground. Are you aware of any precedent for that, where at this scale, uh, at this point of a conflict where we've seen something like that?
0: Well, uh, one is it's important to understand that the world came together to face down uh, the aggression by Russian Federation. Democracies stood up, NGOs stood up. Bar Associations from around the world stood up to support the Ukrainians that's a that's a tremendous signal mm-hmm. as far as uh, uh, Doing just that uh, uh, Going after these individuals uh, the challenge we have is and, and it isn't impre- it's not impressive the only, the, the thing that I would find it similar to is uh, during uh, Syria uh, we had a very similar kind of coming together for a while of, of the world working on I was very much involved in that I'm the co-author of the world-famous Caesar report mm-hmm. which found Direct evidence that the is killing his own people in detention facilities, and that's another story But we had unprecedented support early on with that regard so uh, yeah, it's important what's going on uh, the challenge though is from a practical point of view taking it from an old international prosecutor is that ngos and a lot of other organizations don't have the professional background to investigate an atrocity uh-huh. and so uh they're stepping all over the crime scene uh-huh. uh those individuals who are charged at the domestic perhaps regional but certainly at the international level uh will be coming in and, and going oh my goodness they've they've really screwed up some of the evidence that's a real challenge we have to be very very careful when we have these international efforts and i I write a lot of bids on all of this uh, from my practical experience in, in Sierra Leone, warning that we have to be careful because uh, we do have lots of well-meaning NGOs and other organizations coming in, even countries mm-hmm. coming in to do something to help because it looks good. But in reality, they truly mm-hmm. are stepping all over the crime scene, yep. obtaining uh, evidence uh, that could be used uh, at the international level, domestic level, perhaps at the regional level.
2: So many of our listeners are going to be either current brigade judge advocate attorneys advising colonels of combat units or perhaps operational law attorneys at a division or core headquarters staff. And one of the the major themes of our instruction here at the JAG school over the last year or so has been trying to prepare our lawyers and commanders for operating in what we call large-scale armed conflict, the kind of conflict that's occurring in, in Ukraine right now, as opposed to in contrast to 20 years of counterterrorism and counterinsurgency. And if we were to deploy in that context, if the U.S. were to get involved in a large-scale armed conflict, whether it's in uh, Eastern Europe or not, what advice would you have for those tactical-level JAs, judge advocates, um, when they're going to go into a theater where it's very likely that they're going to come across scenes or uh, allegations of war crimes and atrocities, either committed by locals, by the enemy, or by US forces. What should those JAs do um, in the planning process, for example, to help prepare their commands for that event?
0: Yeah, I really do see uh, in the future, you know, we've been fighting these dirty little wars for a couple of decades where uh, at least one party is not even following the laws mm-hmm. of armed conflict. And yet, as we all know, that doesn't make any difference, Uh, the United States, NATO, its allies always follow the laws of armed conflict. Not following the laws of armed conflict is not an excuse. So I think it's really, really critical for brigade judge advocates, operational law attorneys, is to make the idea of bringing the law on a battlefield, particularly an intense battlefield like a large-scale battlefield, Mm -hmm. Uh, keep it very, very simple, uh, very, very uh, direct, so that they could these 18 and 19-year-olds who are scared to death, uh, who are confronting a very vigorous determined enemy in a large-scale conflict, large conflict, to keep it very, very simple as far as how they approach the laws of armed conflict. you know, I did. I was a, a, a brigade judge advocate uh, in the eighty second Airborne Division uh, in the, between nineteen eighty 1980 and nineteen eighty four. Uh, peacekeeping efforts and stuff like that, but Grenada, all of this stuff. I can remember standing on in Green Ramp, uh, giving uh, these very frightened, that were boarding uh, C one forty ones. Uh, they're looking at you with their eyes as the silver dollars, mm-hmm. and you have to be very, very. Careful in what you tell them to do, and you know I, I kept it very simple. I said, when you hit the ground, uh, don't shoot at civilians. Don't make sure you understand your target. If you do that, you're going to be on your way. I said, uh, you know, we're gonna we don't know exactly how the Cubans are going to react to our insertion, and so all plans go up in smoke when the enemy fires the first shot. Right. So make sure that you engage using what I've told you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, mainly gentlemen, uh, is just have a militarily necessary reason to pull that trigger. Identify your target, know that that he is uh, hostile, and engage in that. I said, you know, if if you can just do that for me, because we're going here in about two hours, (laughs) uh, just do that, uh, and then we will catch up and figure out what the battlefield is presenting mm-hmm. us to us. So bottom line, keep it very simple. Give them two, three, four things that they could keep in their mind as they're jumping out of an airplane or air landing or hitting the beach mm-hmm. or what have you is just immediate things because when those rounds are coming at them, uh, almost as with the intensity of a D-Day type invasion, they're not thinking about the law, they're thinking about living. But again, once they get settled in and are engaged in a way that's a little bit more manageable. Give them just some real simple three or four things to remember. Uh, and again, that depends on the unit, whether it be a special operations unit, an armor unit, mechanized unit, whatever the uh, may be, a battalion landing team, what have you, is just uh, know your unit and give them the things that they need to do so that they don't uh, unwittingly uh, get themselves into a potential law of armed conflict violation. But they're not going to be thinking about LOAC uh, when they deploy in a, in a particularly yep. an intense, high-intensity environment, uh, so don't get complicated on them, yeah. just keep it simple.
2: I wonder though, after the, the rounds have stopped flying and the, and the mortar rounds have stopped landing, they're going to encounter or could encounter situations like Ukrainian troops have found themselves in today, recently where they're engaging with civilians on the ground and the civilians are reporting these terrible things have happened to them and they're reporting to that 18 or 19 year old soldier what is that soldier to do with that information do you see a greater role perhaps in the planning stages for kind of an integrated effort between the jag and the civil affairs officer and the provost marshal you're going to have these specialties at the higher echelons of command and instead of just worrying about POW and detainee treatment. Now these other officers are engaged in communicating with locals about some of the most horrendous things these locals have ever seen in their life. The tremendous psychological impact, let alone the physical impact, uh, of these crimes, um, is just devastating, as you well know. How how can JAGs help prepare their commands for that kind of that immediate post-tactical engagement where they're going to perhaps come across these? Crime scenes, if, for lack of a better phrase.
0: Well, you're going to have to use your chain of command. You know, we can't have these uh, young 18, 19 year old PFCs uh, doing anything other than noticing and reporting. Mm-hmm. So I would even keep it as notice and report up the chain of command. And somewhere within the chain of command, at probably the battalion level at first and then in the brigade area, uh, that is, these reportings are co related uh, and then evaluations are made and sent forward to, mm-hmm. obviously, a uh, division or uh, brigade task force or whatever the issue may be. Our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines have to understand that they have to abide by the laws of armed conflict. Uh, yes, they have to be respectful to civilians. My concern is, is we have to be very, very careful at getting too much involved in any kind of atrocity situation other than being respectful uh, and reporting, you know, respectful to the civilians. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are victims, they are panicked. Yes, that may be a 18 year old from Peoria, Illinois uh, and the first good guy that these people see is that PFC from Peoria, Illinois and they're gonna start coming at him and reporting all kinds of things. And his best bet is to uh, give it to his, uh, his squad leader uh, and then to just Note it. No location, name, forward up, and it can be easily done by uh, by some type of, uh, of, of simple reporting mm-hmm. format right. that can go up. And fortunately, we have the the technology now to take pictures, uh-huh. uh, to get the grid coordinates, all of the things that are necessary. Particularly, I think what they're going to end up doing is stumbling on things like mass graves. Right uh uh civilians lined up, shot in the back of the head, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. You know, photograph and report up the the situation. Yeah. Because again, we can't let them hesitate either. I mean one of the first things that you can do as a brigade judge advocate or what have you is have your soldiers be so concerned about violating the law that they hesitate. And as we all know in a combat situation, if you hesitate even one second, you're gonna get a bullet in the head. So that you know you're you're you don't want your your clients, your your soldiers that you are advising, hesitating. You want them to attack vigorously with the knowledge that they are uh, that they have uh, uh, the law on their side and mm-hmm. and and to move forward to accomplish the mission. Hesitation and, uh, would be a very very difficult thing for them to do. They're, in other words, they are so uh, so much with the law on their head that they're not engaging the enemy and accomplishing their mission, and that would also include uh, potential running across atrocities. Note, report, and keep moving. Yeah. That actually brings up a whole other
2: UCMJ criminal law concern with, with soldiers and the proliferation of social media and their cell phones. If they have them while they're deployed and they're taking these photographs, where are they sending these photographs? Who are they, who are they submitting them to? Or are they posting them online? All of these raise other ethical and, and criminal issues for commands to have to worry about too, well, where
0: we didn't have to worry about them in the past. Well, they're witnesses now. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the pictures they're taking are now evidence, or potential evidence, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it has to be in a way that we don't put the burden on the soldier, we put the burden on the professionals who uh, can assess, analyze, and make decisions and advise commanders. We don't have uh, our privates down there uh, becoming investigators. Just keep it simple, note and report, and keep moving. Would be my perspective. Sure.
2: So I have one more question for you, sir. If you were leading the International Tribunal prosecuting Putin and others, would you charge him with the crimes committed by his military subordinates under a theory of command responsibility?
0: Absolutely. I did. I did that with uh, President Charles Taylor, he, who happened to be the commander-in-chief of the Liberian Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, by constitution, Vladimir Putin is the commander-in-chief of. Russian Armed Forces, he is ultimately responsible, uh, as if he, he's individually, criminally responsible for every single act by his armed forces in and around Ukraine. And so uh, it's been successfully applied and he is command responsible for what he is doing or what is going on in the Ukraine and so I would not have no hesitation prosecuting for war crimes uh, uh, related to the conduct of his soldiers because he is uh, technically uh, in the chain of command and he commander in chief now on the aggression side of the house uh, that has to that will be helpful in showing that he is responsible for directing his forces to invade ukraine so even command responsibility in the crime of aggression yeah. is also very very critical he is the head of the armed forces he directed the armed forces to invade uh, that is an act of aggression. You know, it's interesting. Aggression is not that hard to prove. Right. It's never been. It's never actually, as an act of aggression in modern era, ever actually been charged and prosecuted. However, uh, it, it, as you go through the elements and as you think through the facts that are presented to you, uh, a, uh, uh, proving a, an act of aggression by Putin uh, and his commanders mm-hmm. for aggression and aiding and uh, abetting aggression uh, is not a difficult crime to bring into court and to to show command responsibility is also an adjunct to that and would help bolster the theory uh, that he is the man that directed it because he is the commander-in-chief of the Russian armed forces. Well, sir, that brings us
2: full circle back to the very beginning. Uh, Thank you so much for taking your time to to enlighten us and to share your experience and and, uh, your wisdom. So thank you so much. Listeners, thank you. This is an amazing opportunity to hear from one of the greats. We will try to post the work that you've done, that you've written, the seizure report, for example, on the show notes for, for our listeners to have access to as well. Thank you, and thank you for listening to NSL Unscripted.
1: This episode of NSL Unscripted was brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's, the Judge Advocate General's, Legal Center and School. The views presented are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components, the Department of the Army, or the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. Our department also produces the Operational Law Handbook, accessible online. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and look forward to future episodes for NSL practitioners. Thank you.